And what's good, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Amatelike TIS podcast with your host, yours truly, Jai Shields. Got a busy show for you today. I'm going to recap game one of the NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Toronto Raptors. Raptors winning game one by the final score of 118 and 109. I'm uh, eulogize Bill Buckner and Bart Starr, two legends of the NFL and Major League Baseball, I want to call Bill Buckner a legend, but both two well-known guys from back in the day in their respective sports, they died over this past Memorial Day weekend. I'll eulogize them both. Uh, I'll also touch on the fact Major League Baseball needs to stop uh, farting around and extend those... Uh, Extend the netting from around home plate from foul pole to foul pole because uh, another unfortunate incident happened with a foul ball and a young kid earlier in the week. I'll touch on that. I'll also touch on Lamar Jackson not having a freaking clue in the world because somehow, some way, the Ravens changed their offense and Lamar Jackson had no clue. And I'll touch on that a little bit later on today. But first things first, the lead, of course, is the game one of the 2019 NBA Finals, which was a good game, an intriguing game. Nine o'clock tip on a Thursday night. I mean, oh my God. I mean, it's the same thing from the NBA over and over and over again. I mean, thank God tomorrow it starts at 8 o'clock, but then again, I won't be able to watch the whole game, nor my mind be focused on the whole game, because I got, I, got I got two final exams I got to sit up here and have to take uh, the next day on Monday morning. I got to take a, a, a science exam and a U.S. history exam, and Rather than me trying to analyze uh, the uh, rock, the uh, Raptors' backcourt, I got to sit up here and try to remember that uh, that uh, the New Deal was uh, that the, uh, the and worry about the New Deal and uh, Woodrow Wilson's fourteen points instead of uh, Game Two of the NBA Finals. And but game three, I mean nine o'clock, nine o'clock, nine o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Uh, I'll get to the game, but gee whiz, I mean NBA. I mean you couldn't, you. I mean you guys couldn't uh, did us a little favor. I mean nine o'clock Thursday game one when America's got to wake up and go to sc- still have to go to school the next day, and uh, and got to go to work. And you you got to start the game at nine o'clock, and then game three, same story. I mean. Kids for the most part out of school by June by uh, June the fifth, but but still went on a Wednesday night middle of the week nine o'clock at night and you're gonna be sitting there with two picks in our two with our eyes half closed trying to dozing on and off to sleep resting our eyes at uh, midnight for game three and then game five Monday I mean again everybody's off for school but still for the people that still have to work. Not to mention the fact that the uh, sports fan or the Raptors fan or the Warriors fan, the NBA fan, or the basketball fan doesn't feel like waiting till almost the ni- when the night's over. Doesn't have doesn't feel like waiting till nine o'clock at night for a NBA for an NBA Finals game to occur. And and tomorrow, I mean, it's the earliest start of the entire series, eight o'clock on Sunday. But I mean, 
they, I mean, they ABC could have found a way to push the starting time up an hour. I think they, but again, they they char they they demand every nickel from the companies that pay billions above billions of dollars to broadcast the games. I like ABC and ESPN in this situation. They're like a combined entity owned by under the umbrella of the Walt Disney Company. And uh, they have, and they, and if NBA, and if the ABC wants to put the games on nine o'clock at night, NBA and Adam Silver, they have no control over that. But anyway, that's uh, getting off the uh, the beaten path. Back to game one, uh, Raptors again, one one eighteen or one o nine. Pedro's. Pascal Siakam, who, what, yeah, boy, what a game, what a game, what a game he had uh, in game one, 32 points, eight rebounds, five assists, a steal, and two blocks, and, uh, and, and, um, was, uh, was two for two at the, uh, at the free throw line, and shot 66%, two or three, uh, from three-point range, and uh, you'd have to look at the tape, but I would imagine that was Draymond Green's assignment, and all Draymond Green is known for nowadays is his defense and his ability to uh, to stop to stop the uh, stop the big man trying to post up in the paint and try to uh, get to the basket. I mean that because because there's known for Draymond Green's offense. Granted, the performance he put up. Against Portland about a week and a half ago, but Draymond Green, his bread and butter is uh, defense and rebounds, and there was no defense to behold because again, uh, P- uh, Pascal Siakam. You know, unless you're a diehard NBA fan who watches games in the middle of uh, January or is a Raptors fan, odds are you had no idea who Pascal Siakam is. And you would have never have thought that a that a four for the uh, Toronto Raptors with Kawhi Leonard and Kyle Lowry on the team, you would never have guessed that he would have led the team in in a scoring, considering that he's averaged only nineteen and a half points this entire uh, these entire NBA playoffs. But again, that's Draymond Green's responsibility. He's got to do a better job of defending Siakam, making sure he doesn't uh, break doesn't break loose on the wing for open threes. He can't allow him to post up against him in the paint. He can't allow with with the wide open mid range shots. I mean, what what a game one he had. I mean, I mean, there's nothing else to say. But Draymond Green, on the other hand, you know, instead of him worrying about what Drake says to him and, and chirps at him at the end of the game and instead of him worrying about you know Drake and his antics sitting there courtside how about Draymond Green go back to the film room you know wake up and uh, wake up and smell the coffee and, and uh, sniff the roses and realize this is game one of an NBA final and that you're getting beat that that by a guy that only Raptors fans and and I mean die hard NBA fans have heard of and Pascal Siakam. I mean I mean think about it. unless you're a Toronto Raptors fan or or a die hard NBA fan that watches every game every night from late October when the World Series is going on up until Game Seven of the NBA up until Game Seven of the NBA Finals in the middle of the in the middle of the new baseball season. 
you have no idea odds are who, or unless you're a Toronto Raptors fan, you have no idea who Pascal Siakam is. And the fact that Draymond Green basically got beat by no name, not Kawhi Leonard, not Kyle Lowry, not even though he's no big time guy, Freddie Van Fleet. But the but the fact that he got uh that he got put to work and got toasted to shreds by a guy that again, unless you're a Raptors fan, you've never heard of is is, is embarrassing and a bit of a disgrace. And if I was Steve Kerr and anybody on that Warrior team, I'd tell Draymond to stop allowing Drake to get into your head with his antics on the court side. And quit getting into these asinine juvenile uh, pissing matches with Drake, and tell him and tell him to get himself together and to make sure that Siakam doesn't go off on a thirty-point performance tomorrow night in Game Two. How about that one? You know, Steph and Clay they play, they played good, but it, but they didn't they didn't play great. You know, Steph Curry, he uh, he had Steph Curry had thirty four points, five rebounds, five assists. Meanwhile, Clay Thompson had twenty one points. It's fifty. It's fifty five points between the two. But I mean, they they didn't they didn't do as what they didn't do as well as they should. They didn't uh, do as well as they should have. If if you ask me, both of them were perfect though from the free throw line. Steph Curry, his three-point shot wasn't hitting. He was four for nine, and Klay Thompson, three for six. So their their three their three points their three-point shots were a little spotty. Uh, both combined for five turnovers, which also did them in as well. They played good, but they didn't play great enough. They they didn't and the Raptors didn't blow them out, but the Raptors took advantage of Golden State's mistakes and stupid and stupid dumb turnovers they committed in the game. Which which is why that you saw that they uh, won, and it also proved that they don't necessarily. I mean, even though who who would who would have suspected this, but they also showed that they don't need Kawhi Leonard to score, you know, forty points in order for them to win a game. I mean, Siakam thirty two points, Kawhi Leonard only had uh twenty twenty three points at eight eight rebounds, five assists, and a steal. While Mark Gasol he had twenty point seven rebounds, an assist, and two steals, but. I mean, if you're Draymond, quit quit worrying about what uh what uh Drake what Drake's what Drake's saying and barking at you post game on the sideline, because at the end of the day, and he and if you read quotes, he said that Drake was telling Draymond you suck. Well, I mean, judge by that performance, he he, I mean it's all relative, but judge by that performance by letting some no name guy torture you in a game one of the NBA Finals when you've Basic, where you've basically made your living in the finals every year since 2015. What Drake says, love it or hate it, it kind of hold, it kind of holds a little weight and water to it, considering that you let a uh, that that you that you that that you let uh, Siakam, a power forward, score 32 points, and and he outscored Kyle Lowry and uh, Kawhi Leonard. And, and and had more point and had more points than you did when you only put up ten points. I mean, I get it. Green's not a, not an offensive player, but ten points now, Green. Come on, and you're sitting up here worrying about what Drake says, and and you, and, you, and the guy that you you know had responsibility for dropped dropped over thirty on you. 
while Clay while Clay Thompson only managed to put up twenty one points, and Andre Iguodala only put up six. They gotta do a better job than that. Yeah, they gotta do they gotta do a better job. And like I told you last Saturday, you know, in order for the Raptors to win this series, they gotta come out and gay and they have to punch gold. Figuratively speaking, and you know, in figurative terms, they have to come out right away and punch Golden State in the mouth early to send them a message that. That that they're not playing around. That they, that even though we're ha we're just happy to be here, our first ever NBA Finals appearance. But we're, but we're here not not just for the happy to be here. We're we're here and we're trying to win a championship. And I and I and I said I, in order for them to beat Golden State, they got to send them a message early and punch them right in the mouth in, at home in the first two games. And and it looks like that they did that the first game. Now they got to sit up. Now they have to go out tomorrow night, and do the same thing again, and go up 2-0. No Durant. It looks like Durant's going to come back in game four. So you know, if you get all you got to do is win tomorrow and win the first game at Golden State, and you are right on the doorstep of winning an NBA championship. Now let's not get too ahead of ourselves. You know, Golden State did play well in the game. It wasn't like that the Raptors were, you know, on stop weren't, you know, the uh weren't the uh ninety eight Bulls, but but they played but they still played well. I mean, no disputing that. They still played well. But you know, don't get too ahead of yourself if you're a Raptors fan or if you're a Raptors supporter hating you know, like me rooting against a Golden State his second lane. Don't get ahead of ourselves. Don't think Raptors are gonna sweep, Raptors in five. I think if Raptors win the series, it's gonna be it's gonna be a six or seven game series, and I think if the Warriors win, it's gonna be in a six, it's gonna be in six games as well. Cause I I just a I don't see Toronto losing another home losing uh, more than one home game, and I and I see I see Golden State struggling until uh, struggling trying to find themselves until Durant gets back. Remember, Golden State without Kevin Durant is only has one championship, and you can make the argument that the championship that they have they wouldn't have gotten had not Love and Irving been injured. They only had one championship, and that was 2015. And I know you know Curry and Golden State's got a little bit of a arrogant chip on his shoulder because oh look at us you know oh look at us uh we you know we we don't need everyone saying how Durant's the whole team and Durant's the whole team well you know if I'm going to say it I'll go right out and prove it and uh and blow out the Raptors by 25 and it and ended early because right now you guys could have by the looks of it, you guys could have used Kevin Durant in game one to, to be quite honest with you because Kevin Durant's the type of guy that if Clay and uh, Steph are sh are shaky, they weren't they weren't bad, they weren't horrible, but he's the type of guy that picks up the slack when uh, Clay and Steph, you know, are very very shaky and very dubious dubious, excuse me, offensively. And not not to say that Draymond Green is uh, Wilt Chamberlain, but I mean when he only puts up ten points. They could have used Kevin Durant's help uh, in Game One. Not gonna lie, but Game Two, Toronto has to come out, do the same thing, figuratively punch Golden State right in the mouth, 
prove that they're not playing, prove that they're here and they're in it to win it. The crowd, like it was in game one, they have to be hyped. They have to be excited. They got to make a lot of noise. He and Drake, even though Drake, his answers can get a little tedious and can get a little childish and immature. But for Toronto's sake, you got to make sure that Drake is there sitting courtside every step of the way, trying his best to get into Golden State's heads. And uh, and like I told, matter of fact, I tweeted this to um, DM this to Mike in Orange County, California. Shout out to him if he's listening, who he, like me, is a fan and a listener of uh, Mad Dog Unleashed, host by my man Christopher Mad Dog Russo, Sirius XM, Mad Dog Sports Radio, Channel 82, weekday afternoons from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But like I damned him yesterday, I, said, uh, I DM'd him, I said, Mike, thing I noticed about thing I noticed about Golden State that when a team comes out and and proves that they're not uh, farting around and playing around with them when they least expect it, they it's very easy for their for the opponent to get into to get into uh, to get into Golden State's heads very easily. Last night with Drake and Draymond Green. You know, per, per, perfect example, perfect example, uh, with with LeBron and the in the Cavs and their fans dealing with the uh, when Draymond and Steph Curry acted out in that game in that game five or six, I, whichever one it was in uh, two thousand sixteen. That you know, when Golden State gets comfortable and gets complacent and thinks, oh, they have this. In the back, it's going to be no big deal. And their opponent comes out of nowhere with a proverbial right hook and surprises them and sucker punches them when they least expect it, when they're most vulnerable. It's very, very easy to knock them off their rocker and to get into their heads. Very easily. Very easily. And I think Toronto, and I think Toronto has that with its fan base and with Drake's and with and with Drake and with uh, Drake sitting there, I think I think if Toronto keeps up, I think Toronto Toronto don't be surprised if Toronto could sweep, not sweep, but uh, steal this series from Golden State in a six or seven game series. You know, Golden Golden State gets comfortable, gets complacent, it plays sloppy, uh, plays slop places a brand of sloppy basketball. Isn't isn't. Uh, being careful with the rock and careful in the matter how they play, and I can see the Raptors capitalizing on it. I re- I really, really, really could. Take a break, and I'll eulogize the late Bill Buckner and the late great Bart Starr. Right after this, welcome back to the Amatelaki TIS podcast. Uh, switching gears now. To a serious and a sad note, uh, an NFL legend, an NFL Hall of Famer, uh, an ambassador for the position, um, Brian Bartlett Starr, otherwise known as Bart Starr, he passed away on uh, the 26th of May, a few days ago, in Birmingham, Alabama, he was 85 years old, he suffered a stroke, it was complications, uh, due to a stroke that he had suffered four years ago, and right now, take the time, 
uh, to uh, eulogize and to break down Bart Start and what he was as a uh, player. Uh, this was a man who uh, played with the Packers from 1956-1971, of course. He was the only quarterback in NFL history to lead a team to three consecutive league championships, 1965, and the last ever sole NFL championship, and then the first two Super Bowls, Super Bowls one and two. He won in 66 and then 67. Uh, he was a Packers head coach from 1975-1983. He only had a 4.408 win percentage at 52.76 and 3. Uh, came out of the University of Alabama, University of Alabama, in the seventeenth uh, round in the nineteen fifty six draft. This guy is a five-time NFL champion, two-time Super Bowl champion, two-time Super Bowl MVP, four-time Pro Bowler, first-team All-Pro in 1966, most valuable player in 1966, led the league in passing five times, 1962, 1964, 1966, 68, and 69. He was part of the NFL's all-decade team in the 1960s. His number is retired number 15 and he's also obviously in the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame. You can break down his uh break down his uh, years in the league in 1956. His rookie year he started nine games. He he started nine games uh was forty was twenty four for forty four. He had a, excuse me. Obviously, the completion percentage. He had a fifty four percent completion percentage, threw for three hundred and twenty five yards just in that little season, two touchdowns and three interceptions. Uh, nineteen fifty seven, twelve games, had a completion percentage of fifty four percent. Uh, threw for 1,489 passing yards, 8 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions. So he got more action and more interceptions that he threw. 58. 58. Uh, he was... He started 12 games, 49% completion percentage, 875 passing yards, with three touchdowns and twelve interceptions, oh boy! So you can see how the drop off between fifty seven and uh, and fifty eight for for Bart Starr, but just but in a minute, Vince Lombardi is going to come into Green Bay and uh, and 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 turn him around. Uh, Vince Lombardi, he comes with the Giants in 59. So, here it is. And, and Lombardi's first season with the Packers, Bart Starr went from three inter three touchdown passes and 12 interceptions to six touchdown passes, seven interceptions with a, with a, with a passing yards of 972 and a completion percentage of 52%. In 1960, he threw for 57%, uh, over 1,000 yards passing, 1,358. Had four touchdowns, eight interceptions, interceptions <laughs> very high. Uh, 1961, 
14 games. They moved, they, they added two more games onto the schedule around that time from 12 to 14. So, and to, and, uh, this, and this is the second most passing yards he's had in a season, second all-time in his career, and the highest up to this point, 1961. He threw for 2,418 passing yards, had a completion percentage of 57, or excuse me, 58%, uh, and threw 16 touchdowns to 16 interceptions. Oh, my gosh, for money. Uh, 60, let's see where I am, 62, he threw four career high, 2,438 passing yards, had a completion percentage of 62.5, his best up to that point, up to that point, actually, his also his career best for completion percentage, for completion percentage in 1962 as well, he had, but he, he lowered the interceptions from 16 down to 9, and he threw uh, 12 touchdowns and 9 interceptions, of course. 1963, 54% completion percentage, 1,855 passing yards, 15 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. 1964, 59 yards completion. He started 14 games in 1964, 13, 1963. Uh, back to 1964, 59, uh, hovering just about at 60% completion with 2,144 passing yards, uh, 15 touchdowns, 4 interceptions on the season. Uh, yeah, I think I gave you 63, but just in case if I didn't, and if I skipped over or if I stopped and skipped it, uh, he had... 2,144 completion, uh, excuse me, passing us with a, uh, with a, uh, completion percentage of hovering at just about 60, fit 65, it was 55.8, and for 64, he was 15 and 4 with the touchdowns and interceptions, uh, 1966, no, 1965. 14 games, of course, behind center, 55.8 completion percent. Ah, I already read that one. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, 1966, 14 games. This was the, uh, this was his second, his, this was his second straight championship, and that championship run to run to a Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl one. Uh, he all fourteen games he started. He threw for two thousand two hundred fifty seven passing yards, sixty two percent completion percentage with fourteen touchdowns and only three interceptions. So how about that? Bart goes from throwing goes from throwing uh goes from throwing three touchdowns and twelve interceptions to nineteen fifty eight. To throwing fourteen touchdowns and only three interceptions in nineteen sixty six, Lombardi got with him and uh, and whipped Bart Starr into uh, tip top shape, and that's why Barty, Lombardi is one of the is one is the second greatest coach this game has ever seen uh, behind Belichick. Nineteen sixty seven is the third and final uh, cha championship of that three P run that he had. This is the one where the ice. This was the ice bowl uh, season. 
all 14 games he started, he threw for 1,823 1, passing yards, 54% completion percentage. Interceptions were a little up, 17. And it's been, his career high interceptions was 17. And uh, kind of was a little different because that's really the first time under the Lombardi area where he's thrown that many interceptions through 17 interceptions. Only nine touchdowns in 1967, 1968. Played 12 games that season. Threw for 1,617 passing yards. Had a completion percentage of 63.7. His best completion percentage of his career that year. And uh, threw 15 touchdowns and eight interceptions. And uh, 1969, the last year of the AFL NFL, uh, that he threw for 1,161 1, passing yards, had a completion percent 62%, threw for nine touchdowns, six interceptions. 1970. Uh, first year in the uh, in the current modern era NFL with the AFC and the NFC. 14 games, uh, 1,645 passing yards with a completion percentage of, 50, of just about 55% with 8 touchdowns and 13 interceptions. Only played 4 games in 1971, 2 passing yards with a completion percentage of 53%, no touchdowns and 3 Interceptions and of course Bart start and he finished with a career of 152 touchdowns, 138 interceptions, with over 24,000 passing yards, 24,718 to be exact. And if you skip Bayless's of the world who enjoys QBR, he had a QBR of of uh, 80 of 80.5. If you are interested in that. Let's go now to one of his most famous, is one of the most famous games he's played in, and that was the that was the Ice Bowl. Uh, let's go to that. Of course, everybody, if you're a football fan, you should know the the, the major concept sort of the Ice Bowl. Uh, night is nineteen sixty seven NFL. Uh, championship game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers frozen tundra uh the game time temperature before the game before the game was um was Game time temperature was minus fifteen degrees with a wind chill that made it forty eight degrees uh below zero. Uh the and the story and the thing about the field that made it interesting is that and they still have it now at Lambeau Field that the field was heated. They had heat the field underneath the field the uh Packers had uh they had the field. They had the uh, had the field heated, so because they knew the temperatures were going to make it hard for the players to grip the ground with the cleats, so what they did was is that they heated up the field basically to give it a a warm, humid, moist, dewy feeling on the grass, and they put a tarp over the field, 
to, uh, you know, to protect it from the cold. But if I remember correctly, I think the tarp either it blew away or it tore open or something. Or the no, I know what happened. The uh, so it's the, I if I remember correctly, the field froze. It it flash froze because the um. Yeah, here it is. I got I got it right here. Uh, the heating, the heat, uh, the heating system, the heating system made by General Electric, uh, it failed, which caused the field to, to flash, to flash froze, to flash freeze, which basically is go out in the middle of the winter time, uh, heat, try to heat up something with, uh, hot, with hot steam and then throw and then throw it outside when it's like fifteen degrees and see what happens to it. That's basically what happened with uh with uh with the Lambeau field and the ice bowls. The uh the turf heat the field the uh, grass heating system malfunctioned and then when the tarp wasn't moved from the field before the game, the ground was still wet and moist and because and you combine it with that uh with that moist humid uh wet surface with that cold dry with that cold dry air blowing across it it's gonna it's gonna flash freeze the field and and the players got absolutely no traction on the field whatsoever which makes it so which makes it so uh which makes Bart stars sneak in to win the sixty seven championship game to send the uh, Packers to Super Bowl two so memorable because, I mean, if it had not been for that offensive line with Jerry Kramer and uh, and and his boys, how in the world, how would you expect Mark Starr to get in there? I mean, he literally has to has to shuffle his feet due to James Brown on that on that on that icy slippery, uh, on that icy slippery surface that he that he had that he had to deal with, but I mean. But that's, but I mean that, that that's that's pretty much what happened. Bart Starr was fourteen for twenty four, and in the in that ice bowl game through through for one hundred ninety one passing yards, two touchdowns, and of course he had the uh, rushing he had the rushing touchdown in the end on the quarterback sneak. Listen to the hall, listen to the future members of the Hall of Fame that were part of that game. Bart Starr, Lombardi, of course, Forrest Gregg, the offensive tackle. Willie Wood, the safety, Jerry Kramer, the guard, Willie Davis, the defensive end, Ray Ninchke, the linebacker, Henry Jordan, defensive tackle, Herb Arley, the cornerback, Dave Robinson, the linebacker on the Cowboys, Tech Schramm, the GM, Tom Landry, the head coach, Bob Lee, the defensive tackle, Mel Renfro, cornerback, Ray Field, right offensive tackle, and Bob Hayes, wide receiver, who, ironically enough, the story about Bob Hayes was that he, he, they still they wear them then, and they definitely wear them now. Bob Hayes, what he would do is he would put his hands inside of his hand warmer pouch whenever he wasn't in the play. So the Packers defense always knew whenever Bob Hayes wasn't in the play because he would, because he would run, he would he would run with his hands in his pockets, and whenever uh, the play was called for. Uh, Called for Hayes, he he take his hands out of his pocket, and that's just one of the famous ice bowl uh, ice ice bowl stories, and the 
and the story is that the game was so cold that uh that the official i think t tore like literally tore off uh half of his lip trying to blow the whistle because the saliva to it it, it it immediately froze and when he would try to blow it and try to take it out it and ripped his uh ripped his ripped his uh lip uh ripped his lip right off and here's another interesting stat alternate re the the alternate referee for that game Jim Tunney uh he was the alternate referee for that game and who'd have thought 30 years later on New Year's Eve 1987 he'd be the main referee for the fog bowl between the Philadelphia Eagles and the Chicago Bears only for him 30 years later to be the referee to be the uh to be the alternate referee for the 67 NFL championship game on New Year's Eve 1967 between the Cowboys and the uh in the Green Bay Packers Packers won the game 21-17 beat the Raiders of course in Super Bowl 2 and uh and Bart Starr is in the Hall of Fame for the incredible drive and the incredible job he did leading his team down the field to uh to win the ice to win the ice bowl. And that that's one of the most famous games, one of the most famous drives in uh in NFL history and uh and give credit to Bart Starr who with the wind chill around seven, with within with the wind chill at minus seventy degrees, I'm not making this up. With the wind chill at minus seventy degrees by that time of the day, with the ball out there on thirty-two yard line with four fifty left, Bart Starr drove his team down the field against the wind in the cold to get his to make sure he got his team to that sec to that second, uh, to that second uh straight Super Bowl in their third. Uh, champion in their third uh, pro football championship game. So, uh, rest in peace, uh, Bart Starr. Uh, thoughts and prayers are with his family, his friends, and his ex teammates. Uh, let's since let's not take a break. Let's stay put and go to another guy that uh, unfortunately passed away uh, on Memorial Day weekend and that is the late Bill Buckner who was more known for his he died at 69 years of age uh, he had a battle uh, battling dementia uh, he he never struck out more he was a one-time all-star won a batting title had career stats of he was a two eighty nine hitter with one hundred seventy four home runs and two thousand seven hundred and fifteen uh, hits with over one th with one thousand two hundred and eight RBIs had a slugging percentage of four hundred eight and an OPS of seven twenty nine and on base percentage of three twenty one. Uh, his number is uh. Like I said, one-time All-Star, died at 69 in Boise, Idaho, due to complications of uh, dementia. I'll read you his um, 
I'll read you his uh, his stats here in just a little bit. Of course, Bill Buckner is more known for the notorious uh, error in Game 6 of the 86 World Series between the Red Sox and the Mets. In regards to when anybody tries to tell you, uh, the Red Sox bullpen blew that series. And the manager, considering that Buckner had two bad ankles and practically couldn't move, but because but because his manager was more sentimental about him being on field for the celebration instead of him trying to put his team in the best chance for them to celebrate, you can kind of blame the manager at the time for the Red Sox for him uh, making that error because, I mean... In his mid-30s are two bad ankles, and you've just been beat up and beaten up all season long. Unfortunate, unfortunate stuff like that is uh, is bound to happen. He won a batting title in 1980 in the National League with a 324 average, being named to the All-Star team following season and a major league in doubles, setting a major league record for first base with 159 assists in 1982. Uh, batted 314 to help the Dodgers win a 74 uh, pennant. Then got traded to the Cubs prior to the 77 season. Made his debut at uh, 19 years of age, which was quite young back in the day. Back in the day, but like I said, more notorious for his 10th inning Aaron game 6 of the 86. Uh, World Series in regards when anybody tries to tell you as soon as uh, and I'll play I'll actually I gotta fi- I'll find it right now and I'll play you the uh, the uh, Vince Scully call but uh, completely unfair for Buckner with, with the air I mean the Red Sox bullpen completely imploded and urinated all over itself, and because I'll get the pitcher's name in a minute, but because the Red Sox reliever couldn't throw strikes, Bill Buckner basically gets the heat because he's the guy that gets cost the that gets cost the air. I mean, I mean, when you look when you look back on it, it's it's really. Really unfortunate that Bill and the fact that in the city of Boston, for years, years treated him, treated him like a like a like a pile of uh, like a pile of crap, and uh, death threats to him and his family and everything else, and that was more the fact that the that it had been such a long time since the Red Sox had won anything. You you know it, they kind of you know when stuff like that happens your emotions and your anger gets the best of you and and rationale and stuff like that goes out the window. But here first I'll play you a wild pitch, uh, games I'll play you the wild pitch that tied up the game because remember the red because remember the uh, Mets had runners on first and third two out. Down to their final strike with uh, Bob Costas sitting in the Red Sox 
uh locker room with the uh champagne with the champagne and with the with the uh with the plastic put up but Vince Scully courtesy of NBC Sports back in 1986 here's a wild pitch right now And you can make the argument that once he once he threw that wild pitch, you can make the argument that the that the that the uh, that the Red Sox had no chance, no chance of winning. I mean, when you when you throw a wild pitch, and think about how crucial wild pitch is. If it's if the ball hits Mookie Wilson, he goes to first base. There's a force at any base with the bases loaded and two outs. You know, if if he gets hit by a pitch, it's dead ball. You know, uh, Ray Knight, who's on first base, only moves up 90 feet to second with Mookie on first with the bases loaded and still two out. But because Mookie (laughs) was quick and light on his feet and basically skipped over the baseball... Mitchell comes in and scores a tying run and was sitting there at a tie game with Ray Knight on second base in a, in a game in a game six, three and two, two out uh, to Mookie Wilson. Here's Scully's epic, epic Hall of Fame call. Buckner walking off the field in shame. Everyone wearing orange and blue rejoicing at Old Shea Stadium. I mean, what a that's that's up there one of the most famous world famous and memorable and infamous World Series moments of all time. And Buckner does not deserve to blame for it one bit because that Red Sox bullpen vomited all over themselves, and just and just let and let the uh, Mets nibble back and come back to uh, to make the game close and and to tie the game to force that game seven. And when you're on the road, and when you're on the road and you're up three two, and you allow your opponent at home in that environment to come back against you the way they did. You are you are finished, finito, and he, and and to make matters worse, Red Sox had a lead in Game Seven, and they blew that away. 
So the fact that get so the fact and I even know hypothetically, momentum and and mentally you could you felt like that the uh, Red Sox lost the World Series that night, but but they had a game seven to play. Red Sox got out to an early lead and completely pissed it down their leg, and the bullpen again one more time vomited all over themselves, to the point where Bill shouldn't have even been in that situation. To make to make a play like that, I mean, and I showed us to Brendan the other day. He was more upset at the fact that uh, that Buckner basically gave up on the play as soon as it as soon as it went through his legs. Which you know, in retrospect, he could have gone after it. Who knows if Mookie would have beat it out or not? That's neither here nor there. But. Give you uh, Bill Buckner's stats. Uh, he played play a long career, so I'm not going to go through all of them. I uh, gave you his career numbers. And let's just do 86 with the. Uh, he was 36 years of age, 1986. He put up a batting average of 267. Drew 40 walks, 102 RBIs, 18 home runs, and uh, not, like I said, never struck out more than three times in the game. Had an on-base percentage of 311, slugging percentage of 421, and an OPS of 733. Bill Buckner, Bill Buckner was one hell of a player, and it's too bad that... One get one gaff, one mistake on the game's biggest stage is what defines your career and basically everything you did in playing the game of baseball before and after that means nothing because of that one little mistake you made. But I mean that's that's the way the ball bounces. That's how sports is. So rest in peace, Bill Buckner. And uh, thoughts and prayers are with him, his, or with his family and his friends and his ex-teammates of the '86 Red Sox and the uh, members of the Cubs and Dodgers and and so on. Take a break. I'll t- get on to Major League Baseball and why they need to quit farting around and then extend those foul poles from foul pole to foul pole before another kid gets before a god forbid a kid gets killed by a baseball. Right after this. Welcome back to Amatella Kitiaya's podcast. Uh, staying on the sport of baseball, but not so much to what's going on in the field, but a little bit of what's going on afterwards. Albert Almora Jr. of the Chicago Cubs hit a hundred, hit a rocket of a, of a foul ball in their uh, game against the Houston Astros on Wednesday night. And hit an absolute rocket into the uh, seats down the third base line. And it struck a little girl that had to be rushed to the hospital. Thankfully, it wasn't a life-threatening injury. But, again, you got to raise the question of, you know, you got to extend these screens all all the way to the, fa- all the, way to the, uh, to the foul pole. And I know the season ticket holders and the people that pay good money get they get the one you know the one that gets charged an arm and a leg to go to these games. I understand they have, and to a degree, they have a right to gripe. You know, they pay the tickets, they pay the parking, and everything else. But uh, 
but again, I mean, what what what's it going to take until Major League Baseball wakes up and and takes action? What what's it going to take for God forbid a a three year a three four five year old child a two year old to get to get killed, you know, by by these foul balls? I mean, these players are are just as are just as buff and just as heavily built as as NFL linebackers and defensive linemen, and. Uh, and and they got the you know and the te- and the technology and the stuff in the game makes makes these balls go at a you know they they go in fast because these pitchers throw ninety eight miles an hour and they come out fast because they base because you basically have uh, you know have these hitters that are that are that are buff that are buff and strong enough they could play linebacker in the NFL. Or or big man or play a center on someone's NBA on someone's NBA team, but but uh, you know that's a it's an unfortunate incident. No one likes to see it happen, but uh, I mean it, it happened again. I mean, and any way for it to stop? I mean, again, it's never going to stop because I mean who. Who, who, uh, you know, players' intent when they step up to the play is to hit the is you know is to hit the ball into the field of play, and to, and to and to get on base and help your team win. Foul balls, they're acc- I mean, they're part of the game, but but they're accidents. They they the last thing a, a, a player wants to do is to God forbid take out a fan for uh, f- for uh, striking them in the face with a foul ball. And then, and the players basically get PTSD from stepping onto a baseball field. I mean, that's what we shouldn't have happen. It shouldn't come to the point where a poor, God forbid, a poor little kid gets killed, and we have Albert Almora Jr. basically have PTSD for the next six months because because he has nightmares and he has night terrors and horrible feelings about about a poor little innocent girl that had no business to die or get severely hurt. Get hurt simply because simply because of a foul ball, something so inc- incidental and something so accidental and so random. It, it's crazy. So Major League Baseball has to, and, and if the fans get upset, well, the fans are gonna have to de- gonna have to deal with it. You know, the, you'll eventually. And hockey fans, the parents say this too. They have the same thing with the hockey pucks flying into the stands and knocking out people left and right. Eventually, you go to enough hockey games, you get used to the fact of the of the screen being there, and 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 your mind and your mind plays tricks on you into 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 having. Why do you think like when uh foul ball, when foul balls or hockey pucks or whatever go into go into like a a net screen or whatever? The people's first instinct is is to jump away out the ball, even though the ball isn't going to hit them. Why? Because their brain, because their brain subconsciously, because if you look, if you look through the screen a numerous amounts of times, subconsciously your brain acts like that the screen, that the screen isn't there because, because your mind and your eyes are playing tricks on each other, act, act making it seem like that the netting really isn't there because it isn't obstructing your vision. Which is why you see with like foul balls go back behind home plate. You see the fans jump, jump, and and shriek and flinch out the way, even though the ball, even though the ball is no way in the world going to hit them. So uh, Major League Baseball has to take, uh, take uh, action and has to step up and uh, 
that Major League Baseball, any owners, they got to step up and say, we could care less. I mean, if you don't like it, fine, leave and sell your seats and take it to somebody else. I mean, you'll get over it. You're, you're, the way you watch the game and your quote-unquote entertainment value to a certain degree isn't isn't more important than uh isn't more important than the Satan and the safety and the well being of of uh of the fans that pay and come to the ballpark. And don't sit up here and now if it was an adult it'd be something different. You know, adult grown conscience, get off the phone, wake you're sitting in the on the field level bowl of the stadium Wake up, be alert. You know, if it was an adult, I'd agree with you. But I mean, these are three; these are two, three, four, five-year-old kids. So, 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 in order for so a parent, so you know, if you don't want the screens, you know, extended down, basically, a family, you know, a family that simply wants to bring their kids to the game, they have to sit in the upper deck, nine miles away from the field, away from the action. Come on now. Amazing baseball. Quit farting around and, and and quit shucking and driving and do and do what's right and do what needs to be done. It, it won't. It'll it'll notice. It'll it'll hurt in the beginning, but but as soon but get used to it long enough, you'll see over it. Okay, it's not like that. We gotta have like a screen from like the you know like the roof circle from the stadium down to the thing. No, just. Keep keep the screen there so fans don't have to get hit with uh get hit with with rocket foul balls off of the bat of Albert Amora Jr. You know, it make it to the point where the only way they could get hit with the ball is if their own fault when the ball is hit nine miles up in the air. Everyone is moving and shuffling around or says heads and they don't pay attention. The ball hits them. Let 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 them being hitting hitting the head with a baseball being be their own fault due to their own stupidity and their own ignorance. Not not be not not on a, not via randomized accident. Foul pole to foul pole, loop it around. From the left field foul pole, loop around, pass on plate to the right field foul pole. And the only, and the only part and the only sitting seating area on, on on that field bowl that does get the screen protection is is of course the outfield. Where if you're sitting there anyway, regardless who you are, you gotta be an alert and aware because the ball is gonna be flying there. At any moment in time, and if you are sitting there, odds are you're sitting there t- for a specific for a specific reason, and that's to and that's to catch a home run ball or snag a ground rule double or whatever the case might be. But it's an unfortunate accident that and it's an unfortunate circumstance that has to occur in order for Major League Baseball to wake up and get its head from out in between the time parts. And wake up and try to fix this before God forbid we have a three year old killed at the ballpark because some because some old because some old fart who you know who's worried about his vision being obstructed you know protests uh, protests against the team and and uh and with the season ticket scenario and decides well if you guys go to this night I'm not gonna come to any of your games and then the owners they get greedy and all they care about is this bottom line and blah 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 so then they get hasty and then they're like all right fine we won't put the nets up but then you turn around and in some some random game in the middle of August a poor three year old ba- a poor three year old baby 
dies at the hospital because because of their because their wounds and their uh, injuries are so severe and life threatening that that it, that it wipes them out and it knocks them out. So if Major League Baseball was smart, foul pole, foul pole, no discussion. If you don't like it, you can watch on tel you can watch on television or or just suck it up, bite the bullet, and get used to it. Cause you'd hate for for one of your three. You'd hate if it was your kid or 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 a young or a young kid that's a relative of you, someone that you really cared about. You'd hate it for it to be them, that 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 God forbid get struck in the face with a fastball traveling at a at a hundred and ten miles an hour. Take a break. I'm gonna kill Lamar Jackson for a minute. Him not knowing that the Ravens changed the playbook. Oh my gosh, almighty. Back after this. Welcome back to Amateur Like a TIS podcast. Switching gears now to the NFL. And apparently, Lamar Jackson, yeah, I'm in a goofy mood. And, uh, well, what else am I going to talk about? I'm going to break down and kill the Orioles for the nine millionth time. Uh-uh. Uh, I'm going to kill Baltimore's football team, the Baltimore Ravens, and more importantly, their quarterback, Lamar Jackson, who does not have the biggest or the slightest clue in the world. I mean, please explain to me how you are a, how you the franchise quarterback of an NFL team, first round draft pick, and the first round draft pick, and they and you and and your team had such confidence in you that they traded away their Super Bowl MVP winning quarterback. So they send a message to you that you are their guy. You're their franchise quarterback. Draft out the first round Heisman Trophy winner. Grown man playing in the NFL, getting paid good money, too. Maybe, maybe he it's not he's years away from getting that max contract, but he isn't getting paid chicken change. I'll tell you that much. And you explain to me how you don't have a clue or an idea or just don't hear in general that you, that your team is changing the offensive playbook. And, and and has decided to switch up the offense. Like, I, I can't even fathom that. How are you an NFL quarterback and you be so oblivious and so ignorant that you don't even know when your own doggone team is changing up his offense? Let me tell you something. If Josh McDaniels and Belichick made a little, made a, made a little change to the Patriots' offense, Tom Brady would be on a conference call, making sure that the process goes smoothly. I mean, seriously, Lamar Jackson now the same the same Lamar Jackson that vomited all over himself and and pissed his pants and wet the bed and collapsed like a cheap like a cheap tent. At home in a playoff game against against uh, against the uh, Philip Rivers and the San Diego Chargers. This Lamar Jackson now. This Lamar Jackson who 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 can who who struggles with the forward pass. 
who who isn't who isn't who doesn't typically do a good job with with calling audibles and, and adjusting on offense. That Lamar Jackson. And I gotta sit up here and listen to Ravens fans, you know, go crazy and and and, and call Lamar Jackson the, the the second greatest thing since Johnny Unitas and and Flacco back in his prime and blah 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 blah. And yet, and yet this idiot dope doesn't have enough common sense. Doesn't have the wherewithal to be in the process and be in the know with the Ravens changing their offense. And this is the same and this is the same one who completely vomited all over himself and absolutely embarrassed himself in his first ever playoff game against uh LA back in January. This Lamar Jackson now. Don't expect the Ravens to be some big time football team. I'm I'm telling you, I don't care if they have Earl Thomas, Ed Reed, Ray Lewis on defense with Tony Saragusa on the, and Haloti Nada on the defensive line, and and Gino Marchetti on top of all that. I don't care. Okay. If their quarterback isn't. Isn't isn't sound enough to pick up on minor things such as the Ravens changing the playbook? Then what chance do you guys have of him of him picking up on a on a on a uh, on a on a disguised cover zero, or 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 what do you expect him to do trying to pick up a blitz, a safety blitz, a zone blitz, a man blitz? An overload blitz. Three man rush, everybody else plays back. I mean I mean what what faith do you have Lamar Jackson if, if he can't even get his priorities straight and get himself organized with the playbook? And again, one more time. Embarrass himself in front of America in his first ever playoff game. Against the Chargers in January, and and again, and and don't give me the excuse about well he was a rookie it was his first start. Joe Flacco took you guys to within nine points. Nine points of an AFC Championship and a Super Bowl appearance. I don't want to hear it. No excuses. Year two, Lamar. Flacco's out of your head. He's not a distraction. Let 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 you got Mark Ingram in the backfield. Let's let let's get to work now. And and and, and let's start proving people like me and doubters like me and 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 pessimists. Let, let's start let's start making them look like fools instead of proving them right. Because good lord, I mean, if you, if you do not have the wherewithal and you don't have the awareness to realize when your own team is changing its offensive playbook, what chance and what hope do you have? 
Little to none at all, if you ask me. And trust me, the Ravens' schedule is no walk in the park. You got to play the Rams, and you got to play Seattle in Seattle. Not, not, the, not, the, not to mention the Patriots. So, be that for what it's worth. I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Like TIS podcast. If you like what you heard, uh, please hit that. And you're new to the show, please hit that subscribe button. Be sure to share uh, this podcast with your friends and fa- with your friends, family, coworkers, and classmates. If they're also into uh, sport, if they're also into sports talk, uh, I'm Josh Shields. Enjoy Game Two of the NBA Finals. Talk to you next week. God bless. Y'all take care.